And for this afternoon, we will be turning to 2 Corinthians 2 and reading verses 12 through 16. When we start reading this, this is Paul talking personally to the Corinthians. And this is his second epistle to the Corinthians. He had already written one letter, and now he's writing a second letter. And we begin in the middle of his letter, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, and we'll read through verse 16. And here's what Paul writes. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? This is the time of year when people have Christmas on their mind. Sometimes we say people have Christmas on their brain. And there are a couple things that start to happen before Christmas. There are certain things we know we have to do before Christmas. Certain things we say we can delay until after Christmas. Christmas becomes a dividing time, doesn't it? And we drive around, especially at night. You see all kinds of lights on people's houses and decorations. People have Christmas on their brains, too. It's a highly anticipated time of year. There's parties, there's reunions, there's holidays, there's vacations, you have travel plans. All kinds of things happen around Christmas and New Year's. Now, we just read a passage written by the Apostle Paul. He had something on his mind, on his brain, and what he had on his brain was that he wanted to preach Christ. That was what he was thinking about. His whole life revolved around preaching the gospel of Christ. Wherever he went, he couldn't stand still. He would preach. Now thinking back to Christmas, what would take the whole Christmas time out of your mind? You might get sick, and the only thing that you're concerned about is your sickness. Christmas, forget Christmas. I need to concentrate on myself, or someone you love has passed away, or someone is very sick. You have something that is going to overcome you, or maybe you're fearful about something that's going to happen, or you're anxious, or something is terrible has happened to your life. You've been in an auto accident or somebody else has been in an accident. Your mind is not going to be on Christmas for that Christmas. There are some people who do not like Christmas. The reason they don't like Christmas is because something very bad happened to them during Christmas time. And so sometimes something will get in the way of our mind and our thinking. Paul he wanted to preach the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere. And Paul had a time when he was unable to preach about the gospel of Christ, even though that was what he lived for. That's what he had on his mind. He had Christ crucified in his brain. We read in this passage that in Troas, 
Paul's in Troas, a door was opened to him. We read that a church was being established. It was a wonderful place for Paul to preach and teach. And then in the very next sentence, Paul says he was anxious. His spirit was troubled. He could not find rest. And we might want to ask Paul, Paul, why are you so fretful? Why are you so restless? This work in Troas is going really well. There's no resistance from the local Jews. The authorities are letting you preach to your heart's content. The church is growing. People love your preaching and teaching. And Paul might explain, I came to Troas to meet Titus, and I haven't heard from him. I sent Titus to Corinth on a mission. I gave him a long letter to be read to the Corinthians. And in that letter, I gave them a lot of instructions. And I gave them a lot of corrections they needed to make. It was not an easy letter for me to write. And I'm sure it wasn't an easy letter for them to listen to. I am worried that they were just going to eat Titus up. They were going to leave the gospel. My heart is troubled because I don't know what's going on in Corinth. What did Paul do? Because he was so successful in Troas, did he say, okay, I'm going to push that down and I'm going to stay here? No. Paul left Troas. He took a boat, sailed across the bay, so to speak, and went to Macedonia, hoping that he would meet Titus there. Paul did meet Titus in Macedonia. Titus had a wonderful story for Paul. The Corinthians had listened to that letter, and they had accepted the correctives that Paul had given to them. They had taken care of the wrongs that they were doing. And Titus just had a glowing report. We're reminded that this kind of thing happens in our lives as well. In every Christian life, we read in Luke 23, Jesus was crucified. And because it was a Sabbath and it was a holy Sabbath, a very high holiday, when they took him off the cross, they brought him to a grave and just left him there. And the women said, he wasn't given a proper burial. We're going to have to go as soon as the Sabbath is over and give him a proper burial. We read in Luke that they came with ointments. They came with spices. They were going to go to the grave site on Sunday morning, it was, the day after their Sabbath, and give Jesus a proper burial. When they got to the tomb, what happened? Jesus wasn't there. They were perplexed. There were two men standing there in dazzling apparel. They looked at these two men in amazement. And the men says, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. What a turnaround for those women. What they thought was a bad situation. They were troubled. They were sad. They were grieving. They were going to do their last thing for Jesus, the man that they loved so much. And they were turned around. Jesus has arisen. We think about Joseph in Egypt. He thought he was forgotten in prison. 
He thought that he was never going to get out of prison. He even talked to people and said, remember me when you leave prison and you're out there. Remember, I'm a good guy here in prison. I can do something for you. Nothing happened. And then one day, Pharaoh came knocking on the door. And Joseph was released from prison. He spoke to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh liked what he had to say. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. No one will be greater than you except for me. What a turnaround. These things happen. We might get distracted from seizing a God-given opportunity like Paul and Troas, like the women thought they were doing the right thing for Jesus. Joseph was doing the best he could in prison, but God has different plans for us. We read in Proverbs, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, verse 9. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Jeremiah said, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, but that it is not in man who walks to direct his ways. It is in God's hands. Paul was redirected. We may remember being redirected. What seemed perfectly legitimate and right, an opportunity had arisen for you that was wonderful, seems like the right thing for you to do, but your spirit is troubled. It doesn't seem right. There's a difficulty in your mind. There's nothing externally that's a problem. It is the spirit that is working within you, that is troubling you, that is redirecting you. And sometimes we forget it's not just our outward experiences, outward circumstances that cause us not to do something. Sometimes it is something within our heart. And if you are a Christian, you need to listen to the Spirit prompting you because that's what the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit did with Paul. For Paul, when he met up with Titus and heard the good news from Corinth, He burst out in thanksgiving. And so today, what is this thanksgiving like? And Paul uses an analogy that is not very familiar to us. And you know how Paul likes to use analogies. He talks about us being part of the body of Christ. He talks about us running a race. He tells us to put on the whole armor of God. He uses these illustrations to help us understand what the Christian life is like. And in our passage, he describes a Roman triumph. He says, Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. And he's really using something that the Corinthians would have understood very well. But we don't understand it very well. And what is a Roman triumph? It's when a conquering Roman general who has been out somewhere, had a great victory, has conquered lands, conquered enemies, and comes back to Rome with his army and all those people that he decided to take with him, 
and all the treasure from the country that they took over, and he camps outside of Rome, and they plan a procession. They plan a triumph, is called. Today, if you go to Rome, there are three arches that were created for triumphs that are still there. When Roman generals came back, they just don't camp out for a few days. Sometimes they camp out for months so that everything is put ready to go in the triumph. And what is a triumph? It's a parade. It goes from where they are camped outside of Rome. It goes through that arch. They wind their way throughout the city of Rome and they end in the arena perhaps the Colosseum. And in the Colosseum, the soldiers who were the victors, so to speak, are recognized. The slaves, the people they've captured, are killed for entertainment. And so what happens during that procession is that victorious general, he's at the head of the parade, so to speak, the procession, Along the way are marching troops of soldiers interspersed with all the stuff that they got on wagons, gold, treasures, artwork, anything valuable that they took from the land that they had overcome. And then they have one other thing. There are priests. All along the route of this parade, I have priests. And they have censers, little tiny metal boxes filled with incense, lit incense. And they're swinging their censers so that the whole parade route smells of incense, a special incense created for the triumph. That's what's happening in a triumph. Triumphs, I would say, were extravagant no expense spared. They were loud, they were long, and they were filled with the aroma of incense. And so the Romans had something that you could hear, you could see, you could smell. And when you got to the arena, you know what it's like to be in a big arena with all these people, the excitement that happens being in an arena together for something big to happen. Maybe like being at a huge football game or something. That type of excitement before it becomes. So how does Paul use this Roman triumph as an analogy or as an illustration for us? And the first thing he says is that Christ is leading us in the triumph. He is the leader. We read in our passage, Christ always leads us in triumphant procession. Christ is always there. He is the one who is the leader. He is like the general that was coming into Rome. It is Christ who is leading us. We read in Colossians that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ is the one who is the winner. He is the one who's the general. He's the one who planned for what's going on. He is the leader 
of who we believe and worship. Christ lived a sinless life. He endured persecution and death on the cross. He had victory over death. Isn't that something to celebrate? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Christ leads us. Christ gave us victory, but he also gave us that victory. We are participants. We are following along. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is always leading us. As I mentioned before, there's three triumphant arches in Rome. Each one was a different general, a different century almost. They've survived to this day. You can go and see them, very ornate arch, beautiful things. Christ is the only general who counts he is always the one who leads us in procession. We always follow Christ. Other generals that we have to follow. He is the one we follow. Are you a follower of Christ? You will have glory and honor if you follow Christ through the arch, into the city, to the arena. Christ's victory is your victory. Christ Jesus will lead you into the arena. In the arena, he will give you your reward. Your reward is eternity in heaven with him. That's our reward. And that incense, Paul says, that pungent smell, you know there's a triumph in Rome. That pungent smell, that triumphal Procession is likened to the aroma of Christ. What is the aroma of Christ? It's the words of the gospel. Paul is thinking about his ministry to the Corinthians. He had spread the aroma of Christ to the Corinthians. He had taught them. He had showed them how to live. He had explained as much as he could do. He preached to them. He preached Christ crucified. He preached what Christ wanted them to do, how to live. And he's thinking about all the soldiers, all the people who were converted, that they're following the Lord Jesus Christ through their lives until they get to the arena. And what makes us pause for a moment? We can spread the aroma of Christ. Are we swinging that censer? Are we dispensing the gospel of Christ? Are we spreading what we believe? It's Christmas time, isn't it? It's a very wonderful time. Christmas is an excellent time to proclaim the good news about Jesus. You ask somebody, well, what's Christmas all about? And they say, well, I'm going to get some gifts. We go to some parties. We're going to do some things. They said, isn't it about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know what that means? Christmas time is a time to spread the gospel. 
And we should look for opportunities to spread the gospel, especially during this time of year, because we just have a cultural basis to open up as to what Christmas is all about. And so let's think for a moment about the last part of this illustration. And Paul doesn't mince any words on this. He says, in that triumphal procession, are captives. And these captives have been carried all the way from the country where they came from for one purpose. They're going to be led into the arena and they're going to be made sport of. And by the end of the day, none of those captives are going to be alive. They're either going to be part of battles, fake battles. They're going to be killed by wild animals. Something is going to happen to them. They're not going to escape. When these captives are marching in the procession and they smell that incense that's especially been formulated for the triumphal procession, they're thinking, this is it. This is my end. To them, that smell, I've lasted all this time. I've been sitting here for a year waiting for this. This means this is my day. Paul uses this language to one, a fragrance from death to death. The soldier who's in that procession, he smells that incense. He's going to get to the arena. He is going to be awarded something. And usually soldiers of these armies were given land, a place to live with their family. To him... What is that aroma? What is it smelling like? It's a fragrance from life to life. That's how Paul describes it. When you dispense the gospel and you tell somebody about what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing here on this earth and you talk about the salvation that's associated with him, to some, what is it? They think it stinks. They wrinkle their nose. It makes them sick. This isn't anything that they want to have anything to do with. And to some, when you tell them the gospel, their heart sings. They said, this is the most precious thing I've ever heard. And even when we speak to each other as Christians, it's enjoyable to talk about what Jesus Christ did, how we got here, what his birth was like. This aroma of the gospel is sweetness of life. And then Paul asks himself a question. He says, in light of the fact that I have devoted myself to preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, there are some who are being saved and there are others who are going to die. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? And you're saying, Paul, you're a gifted preacher and teacher. And you're wondering if you're worthy to teach the gospel? Especially when some reject the gospel, is it better to say nothing at all? And we would say, Paul, you're right. You're not sufficient to preach the gospel. We're not sufficient. I'm not sufficient. You're not sufficient. And it takes Paul a while to answer this question. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 3, the next chapter, he says, 
Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. He says, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. You're right, we're not sufficient in ourselves. We are sufficient in God. And so when God works in your heart, it gives you opportunity to spread the gospel. You're not doing it on your own. You are doing that through the sufficiency of God. He is giving you that opportunity. He is helping you use that opportunity. That's what Paul is talking about. It is God working in you that makes it possible for you to witness to others through your lifestyle and through your words. We read in Acts that Peter, of all people, after he had been, or he might have been speaking in tongues, but there were people speaking in tongues, and he stood up and gave a sermon. And finally, Peter says, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter proclaimed the gospel. He wasn't a preacher before this point. He was a preacher after this point because the Spirit of God came in him. But then Luke has a commentary. He says this in verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, well, most of us aren't that well educated as far as doctrine and preaching and so on are concerned, they were common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's a word of admonition to us. Do people recognize that you've been with Jesus? Are you trying to be like Jesus? If Jesus is working in you, Jesus will work in you and be sufficient for you to live a life that is honoring to him.